Dear listener, thank you for tuning into our podcast, Inside Impact Investing. This is the first of our series called Reset the Economy. In four episodes, we're discussing the need and pathways for radical economic change. The COVID-19 crisis revealed once more the severe shortcomings of our current economic system. In the wake of the pandemic, we have a great opportunity to build an economy that is fit for the future, one that is more resilient, more sustainable, and more inclusive. Investors play a crucial role in the transition of this new economy, providing the capital needed to realize real and profound change. The investment choices they make can have a positive impact on our planet and society, while at the same time delivering solid long-term investment returns. In this first episode, we talk about radical change from a macroeconomic perspective. Ecological economist Tim Jackson, who has just published his latest book, Post-Growth, and Hans Degemann, chief investment strategist with Triodos Investment Management, discuss the need for a shift in our economic perspective, away from growth and short-term thinking. Welcome, Tim, and thank you for joining us to discuss this important topic of reset uh, the economy uh, and also about post-capitalism, as we call it. Uh, I think we agree that a reset is urgently necessary. A challenging task for us as economists, policymaker, and financial sector. Um, we're going to talk about your new book, Post-Growth Economics, um, which is a follow-up uh, on your, your previous book, Prosperity Without Growth, which is, I think, one of the most important books over the last 10, 20 years. Um, and we are going to discuss three different but related topics. The need uh, and idea of post-growth, uh, what buttons we have to press to get there, so the transition and the role of the financial sector. First, um, let's let's take a, maybe a short step back. Um, I was reading your book over the last few days. I really loved it. And it was also... Thank you. Uh, listening to the news in the Netherlands. So the Netherlands is also opening up a little. Um, and we have had a lot of discussions this week. The zoos are open, uh, the swimming pools, the fitness. But what is not open is everything what has to do with culture. And mm. our minister uh, said, yeah, but you can also watch a DVD. And I was reading you <laughs> through your <laughs> book and thinking about post-capitalism and capitalism uh, and I was reading into the part of Hannah Arendt and I was thinking, is this not one of the things that goes wrong in capitalism? What's your opinion on this? In in the sense that our, our creative lives go missing. Yeah. Y yes, I, th I think it is. I think creativity is undervalued in, in capitalism because capitalism seems to place most of its emphasis on the efficiency of producing things. And actually, interestingly, the creative sector is one of those sectors where it's very difficult to uh, go on increasing that efficiency. It's it's uh, you know it's a place where you want your musicians to rehearse for a long time. You don't want them to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony faster and faster every year. You 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 want time in in the commodity of of creativity, and capitalism doesn't do that very well because it's. It's very busy chasing people out of the economy through 
uh, endless pursuit of labor productivity and in, in pursuit of profit maximization. So, so yeah, I think it is, you know, and it's something in a way that as it becomes devalued in our economic system is also uh, something which is harder for people, for ordinary people to, to dedicate time to and find time for and, and even sometimes to see the value in because we're being taught that that's not where value lies. Um, but that assumption that it doesn't lie there is just an assumption that's you know that's that's useful if you like for for an, a, a system that's based around marketization of of our entire lives and and actually as we all know some of the most important bits of our lives lie outside that market. Yeah, if 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 I read your book, I'm I'm really thinking. Um, and so it it starts because it's about post growth. So it starts with with growth addiction, etc. But underneath this, and that's what I feel when when I read or or, or mostly re- remember when I read your book. It's it's about the underlying perceptions that people have. So g- growth or, or growth addiction is only a symptom, I would say. And and mm. and I was thinking because you you have been writing so long about post growth, etc. Um. Was it not maybe for you a reason to go more into the philosophical part? Um, because that's the underlying cause of all of this. Yes, that that was that was exactly right, Hans. I mean, um, Prosperity Without Growth was first published kind of over a decade ago, and it was a it was a book that did a lot of uh, exploration of the technical, of the economic, of the environmental, and of the policy. Um, uh, directions that would that would allow us to address some of the challenges that we face. It was it was ultimately it was written in fact for the UK government back in the day, and and you know it was very interesting that the UK government, to be honest, wasn't that interested in hearing it, <laughs> um, but a lot of other people were interested in hearing it, and they were ordinary people. They were not policy wonks. They were not economists. Sometimes they were not technologists they weren't even environmentalists sometimes there was there was something there that was more social more philosophical that really appealed to people and and in a sense post growth was written for that audience that sort of uninvited audience to prosperity without growth but the ones who really really understood and supported its message um, and so, so in a sense, and it was actually a direct request from one of those early readers that I should write something that was, you know, more widely accessible, not couched in technical terms, but addressing these underlying philosophical aspects. So that's kind of where this book came from. Yeah, and and if I would ask you to to summarize what is the root cause of what's wrong with capitalism. What what would that be? That's quite that's quite a difficult question. I think I would say I would say that the root cause is a false vision of who we are as human beings. It's a vision that's forged through um, a version of human beings that that is that sees us as as competitive, rational. Uh, selfish, 
self-maximizers. We are, we, are, we are the people that the economic system kind of needs to keep that economic system going. That's the way that capitalism sees us. And it does that actually in a very precise way through, through coding this pursuit of endless productivity through profit maximization as the core behavior that drives enterprise and that pushes society forwards and i think it's you know it's 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 a false picture it's it's a it's a wrong picture of the human psyche it, it it admits nothing of our care for other people or our care for the planet it 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 doesn't think about our sense of being grounded in history or connected to the future it doesn't admit if you like it's very simple it doesn't admit the poetry of life into our calculations at all and and that was that was one of one of the things that i was trying to do in the book in a way was to was to reinvigorate economics itself with a sense of that um that broader picture that i think psychology supports uh you know you, you and and the wisdom traditions support you you can't really find rational economic man anywhere except in economics <laughs> yeah and 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 hence in in the capitalist system and and in the financial system which steers the economy i i think what what you make very clear in in the book is that we don't need any new ideas there are a lot of ideas we only need to escape from the old paradigm i would say of 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 capitalism as in the way it is um and You've written the book last year in, in, in COVID-19 times. And I think also from my perspective last year around this time, it was really different. It was, for me, it was optimism about post-growth, I, I would say. But now we're almost a year later. And I feel that we have already to reset, to reset, to, to get anywhere. Uh, but mm. how, how do you see that? Are you optimistic about reaching a post-growth economy at the moment? I think this is, you know, this is was always going to be a very contested moment in time. We 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 found ourselves thrown into post-growth. We found ourselves thrown into life after capitalism. In a sense, almost every ideological uh, rule in the rule book was thrown out of the window during the early days of the pandemic. Um, and governments thinks, did things which were not supposed to be allowed in, in capitalism, and they supported lifestyles in ways, livelihoods in ways that were not allowed. And we found different kinds of, of lifestyles, different skills in ourselves, different social priorities through that period. And, and, and when I was writing, yes, we were to some extent in, in, a, in a place where that post-growth world was easier to see. And and in many ways there was you know there was a huge call for some of that to stay, for some of the quality of life to stay, for some of the government interventions to stay, for our you know our ability just to to walk in the streets as human beings physically moving through the environment in a different way, for some of that to stay as well, and and the, that has changed. I think you're right that. 
the, 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 the reset, if we want to think of it that way, means very different things to very different people now. And I think we're kind of in the middle now of a sort of ideological battle between those who can see the advantages of a post-growth system and those who are desperate in some ways not to find themselves ending up in a post-growth system who are desperate to to reinstate where reset really means kind of reinstating much of the architecture of what we had and potentially with an even bigger risk that in reinstating that architecture those who had power in that system and influence in that system would capture more of that power and influence through the process of reset so i do see it as at this point as as a very contested place with with a lot to fight for and something to lose yeah uh, i ask it also because some people say the the reactions of authorities monetary uh, of central banks or or um, our governments is different than in the financial crisis And sometimes I doubt it because it's still, especially for central banks, and if you see what happened on the financial markets, the outcome is the same. It's more inequality saving um, the, the haves in general and, and, and not the not-haves. And then we end up with the system with higher debt in general, with uh, a lot of liquidity um, and more inequality. Mm. And as and that was also in your book, in, in some Respect, especially in the early days of the of the pandemic, you could say this is a different reaction. Now we see what what is valued most, and mm. I agree on that. But maybe the outcome is even worse. Or am I too I pessimistic? <laughs> I think there is a danger that the outcome is worse. I mean, actually, there was a there was an extraordinary moment uh, at which it was possible to draw co- two completely different charts of the economy during the early stages of of the pandemic. One of um, unemployment going through the roof and the other of a very short dip in stock prices followed by an inexorable rise as governments put so much liquidity behind stock markets that they their, their performance through last year virtually, not only it did not really suffer, it actually improved to some extent in unbelievable ways, even as the fundamental elements of the economics of our societies was going in the wrong direction and and that you know that inevitably privileges the owners of capital over the people who saved our lives for example and 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 if that that would be a worse outcome than the financial crisis i think if that trend to you know uh, use liquidity to support asset prices at the expense of decent salaries for the people who care for us that would be a tragedy of capitalism yeah yeah this is sometimes when i'm in a pessimistic mood i'm 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 really afraid of this to, to be honest so let's let's also try to to look at the at the brighter side of of things um And I was think, thinking also looking at, at the work you've done, but also in, in the general discussion on, um, on uh, reset or rebuilding or where you refer to also in your book, the World Economic Forum, there was a, a lot of talk about, well, maybe saving capitalism in the end. Um, I was thinking about it, the, the, the idea of trigger points of Donella Meadows, who says uh, you have a lot of shallow trigger points where you say you do a lot, uh, but they don't have 
any leverage in the system. Um, and in your book, I think you really addressed the paradigm and, and um, how you really should change things. And then, of course, the question is, and that's always a very difficult question, and I think I already know what your answer will be, uh, how are we going to get there? What, uh, this is not in your book, um, but that's, of course, the question, and I think it was in your previous book uh, a little bit more. That's the question we we often should ask ourselves. If we see that we are in the wrong paradigm, how do we escape from it in general? Yeah. I mean, uh, you're right. It was more in, in prosperity without growth than it was in um, post-growth. And, and at that point, I was very aware. In fact, I, you know, I was working for a government commission and I was confronted all the time with people who would say, yeah, that's all very well, Tim, but what do we do on Monday? And, and actually, so post prosperity without growth did have that sort of shopping list of things you could do on Monday, and, and in very short terms. And I sometimes characterized it this way: it's you know establish the limits, particularly the limits of our finite planet, fix the economics because they're broken ultimately, and change the social logic. Um, and and there was a you know there was a longer shopping list about the things that you could do within that including things like you know the the proper framing of a financial system and and proper prudential and fiduciary duties in in uh, financial systems and creating the price structures so that the economy works in a better way and supporting uh, workers and the right to work particularly in sectors that we need most i mean that list goes on and on and and actually kind of 10 years of of working to make that list visible to policymakers was one of the reasons why it seemed to me, you know, something different was needed. And that difference, it seems to me, is that we have to motivate people. And and to motivate them, I think we have to provide a sense of a life after capitalism, of a better place to be, a place that allows us to be human beings with with poetry, with care, with love, with relationships to each other at the forefront of our lives rather than delegated to things that don't matter because they don't live in the economy. And to me, so to me, you know, you can you can populate those shopping lists of policies. There are many, many things to do. Political will lags behind all the possibilities that we have to create a fairer system and political will can really it seems to me only be driven by um you know a democratic mandate and that democratic mandate is depends on people seeing that something better is available so it's that it's that kind of vision component i suppose if you were to try to place post growth and prosperity without growth in context it's that vision component that that post growth is is attempting to um to, to sort, sort of instill without at all diminishing the importance of doing something on monday <laughs> yeah yeah mondays are important of course um i was I was also thinking, um, you you also have, uh, and you touch upon it already. I think uh, when you talking about a vision or, or 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 some some nice perspective, people must have to go for, and it must be reflected in politics, but also must also be reflected in our daily life. 
And you also talk about it in your book that it's also about disobedience. Eh? So going, uh, being sometimes disobedient to, to do what you want to do. And I was always, but my struggle is always that you tell, and I also did it, <laughs> tell people, yes, the good life is not a material life. It's something different. And as you also said, it has to do with love. It has to do with attention. And, and in times of, of, of COVID-19, it also has to do with if you work at home and you have little kids, you can spend more time with your kids, etc. So that's, that's part of the good life. Well, I, I'm not sure how how easy that was. Having you know many many colleagues and friends who who, who went through that situation, um, but I but I absolutely take the point that that yes, that vision of the good life and and many people would express it has those characteristics. Yeah, and and sometimes it's it's I'm optimistic about it, but then. When shops opened opened up in the Netherlands, there was a long line at the Primark, um, and and not at the bookshop because it was also still closed, um, and that gives the vision of our our government. Um, but I always also saw your um, uh, and I want to quote you on this one. Uh, make it a little bit shorter. In 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 the chapter on the dolphins in Venice, you you say. The more materialistic we are, the greater our tendency to avoid undesirables. And this in turn undermines the strength if mind needed to develop our ability to experience flow. And with flow, my explanation is that's a little bit of the good life. It's it's different, yeah. which, what you mean there. And the biggest question is how do we, if I see those lines at the Primark, then I question, yeah, this is not going to work. <laughs> how do we get there? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you know. To me, I think the the point is that we are we are who we are in the middle of this system, and we have and we have in fact kind of created this system. We've created those priorities. We have um, elevated materialism to n- not not just you know a, a part of our psyche, and of course we have those psychological tendencies towards uh, towards luxury and towards. Um, material things and towards accumulation but but what we've done in capitalism is to elevate that to the organizing principle of our economy and of our society so that all of our social values have to be created in that materialistic way in order for the economy to work properly and we've done that systematically for five or six decades so it's kind of not really that surprising to find that, that those materialistic values are highly relevant, they're highly pertinent, they emerge, particularly when we've you know, lived under such social constraints, they emerge with a speed and alacrity that is, that is absolutely predictable. Is, is, is that also why you, you, you describe, I, I don't know who painted it, but that, that painting with the faces, you say you have to look mm. back, you have to look in front, and you have to look into the future to to get a bigger bigger picture of uh, what life can be. Yes, indeed, and that's a kind of an allegory of prudence in in that painting by Titian, and and it's and it is you know it is something that that kind of again tends to go missing in capitalism because we're always fixated on the frontier of novelty. And that frontier, we hope, is you know immediately ahead of us. We don't look beyond that. We don't look to the past. We don't have that prudent view of who we are. And 
if you think about the sort of systematic way in which consumerism itself was sort of established after the Second World War, and 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 there was a wonderful book called The Science of Desire, which kicked off, in some sense, kicked off this whole idea of marketing and advertising and, and being able to persuade people to buy things and to and that that's where their identity lay. And and there was, you know, there was a, a critique of that at the time, but but actually it, it was washed over by this enormous advance in the way that we thought about ourselves. Um, what seemed like an advance that kept the economy going, that rebuilt it after the war, that put the shadow of the Great Depression behind us and that looked as though it was going to deliver us a sort of materialistic utopia. And and the values that, that, that were quite deliberately um, orchestrated through that period are still, are still a part of our social fabric. And, and in a sense, you know, when you ask what's the pathway, I think we have to be honest about that. We have to be honest about the fact that we've created that, that it's not actually in line with our best interests of, as human beings, but it is essential for the kind of economy that we've created because those are exactly the people you need to keep that economy growing. And and so simultaneously, I think we have to do two things. This One is the economy must not need those people anymore. We must not need because of these economic um, necessities towards growth, we don't need any longer to make sure that everyone is a materialistic consumer. And on the other hand, to start to dismantle and rearrange those perverse incentive structures which were put in place quite deliberately in the post-war period to create consumerism. Yeah, so that, that's that's an agenda in the end also for for public policies for, for uh, changing institutions. Um, but what we at, at Triodos also like to do, or what we claim to do at least, is is to uh, change finance and finance change. So contribute to a world that will be a little bit better place in the way we discussed, I think. And also in your, your book, you touch upon it in, in a little, uh, in a, only in a short way, I think a few pages on the role of the financial sector. And and you say in your book that the foundation of this new portfolio, of the, the way we should see the role of the financial sectors must be ecological investments in the first place and 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 care investments and creative investments, you add to that. But you say specifically first ecological investments. Why is that? I've I've kind of thought for quite a long time that the way that we need to reform economics, you know, rather than just um, bemoan its failings or think we can tinker at the edges, is to take apart its fundamental concepts. And one of those fundamental concepts is investment itself. And so investment, and and this was the point in a way of that that painting that you described that it that it the prudence consists not of riding a wave of, of instant profit as fast as you can before anyone else can steal it from you, but actually of that idea um, of, of, of investment as a commitment to the future. Uh, it was a concept that I introduced first in Prosperity Without Growth and, and in a sense in post-growth also by the story of, which is a really fascinating story of Um, the Greenbelt movement in Kenya and work of um, Wangari Maathai. And, 
and and this idea that actually investment has to provide is what provides for us a canopy of hope for the future. It's our commitment to the future. We don't consume everything now because we care about what the future looks like. And we set those resources aside in order to put them in place to make sure that prosperity is there tomorrow for our kids and for their kids. And I think that, you know, that's absolutely accords with what in what the real meaning of investment is within economics. And and it's also very clear that the financial system as we've known it has gone a million miles from that idea. So so my 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 sort of my suggestion there is that you know in if we begin to rethink investment as a commitment it redefines the portfolio of our investments and the very, the most fundamental basis of that is the commitment that we have to the means for our own lives our subsistence in the future and the living conditions of our planet and so that's why i call that an ecological investment i call that sort of you know ensuring in a sense that we are we live in a regenerative economy rather than a degenerative economy and that 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 investment in in our living conditions in our, in the planet on which we live is is one of our is is at the top of our portfolio if we take investment seriously yeah and and what you essentially say the, the, i think the the, the simple or the, the example you use is also just growing trees takes a hundred years or whatever. So an investment in an economic sense uh, will lead to, to a yield in the future, but not a specific financial return at this moment. And 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 making that difference um, gives, I think, also a very different lens on what you should do as the financial sector. Uh, and of course, that's a challenge uh, also for, for three adults as being part of the financial sector and having clients. And my, my question would be, especially at this time where, where we are all busy with net zero as trying to be uh, climate neutral in the future, which essentially means the only way to, to become cli- uh, climate neutral in 2050 will be to have regenerative activity. So really that ecological portfolio which regenerates uh, nature and the question is is there a transition possible or can you from within the system really do that or is it something which is really out of the system and and start anew um i i think in (laughs) in some ways I, I suppose my my starting point is that yes, it is possible to do that within the system, not without profound changes to the system, but it is possible to do it within the system. I mean, in a sense, I would argue that Triodos has shown that over, you know, it's been a successful small bank for 30 years and it has created actually a niche where you can show that money works for the good that you can that people can invest and feel safe to invest their money there and that that will deliver yields that are not just financial yields but are also social and and environmental and so you know the question you're asking me really is does that model does it scale up does it is is it is it does it survive and I think, you know, I think there, that is a, a really tricky question because you then have to ask what that what that system is going to look like as 
banks across the world adopt a model like the one that Triodos has done. And it seems to me, you know, it seems to me that we have to answer those questions progressively as we come across them. For the moment, there is a space in which a bank such as Triodos can create investments which are which do provide a financial return, which are moving us along the path to net zero, which are creating social returns as well, and which are capable of regenerating the environment. That space exists, and, and in a sense, Triodos has proved that that space exists. Many other banks as well, banks, financial institutions, funds, ethical pensions, and so on and so forth. And as more people become aware of that and move their savings into that space where they're doing good in the world it seems to me that that you know that there is a place where some growth actually not only exists but is is beneficial and 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 it see and then the second task it seems to me as we move along that path is is the task of balancing financial returns with social and ecological returns and and there it's about having you know strategies which protect those environmental and social returns which sometimes offer people the choice not to prioritize their financial returns in fact you know i've had this conversation with triados in in the uk about the the possible market for people who kind of don't mind if they've got a below market rates of return on their funds because in fact you know in a world where we're not getting much growth where if you put your money in savings there's no return on it whatsoever actually thinking about your pension over the longer term and 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 putting your money to work over that long term it doesn't matter if you've got a zero percent rate of return effectively because your money is still there you are protecting your future and that money is doing good work in the world and i you know it's i i realize that's a kind of a hard sell financially and there's and it's definitely not everybody's cup of tea but there are people you know who increasingly i think who are concerned about the the way that their pensions are constructed the way their savings are used and don't want to be part of the destruction of the universe, the yeah. destruction yeah. of the planet. I'm sorry, Mars <laughs> is still available <laughs> if Elon Musk has his way. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the destruction of our, of our planet, um, you know, because we want to live a long life and have some financial security along it. So making people's money work, making Make my money matter is the the title of a of a recent kind of campaign to get people to shift their pension preferences. I think that's you know that's that's where that short term uh, those short term possibilities that short term bubble within which Triodos has carved out such a clear space is something that can can change into the nature of our economy at the wider level it's um you know it's a vision for a for a, a not just a a a financial system for, but for an economy that is ultimately regenerative that is sustainable that is ethical and and in which money plays the role of servant rather than master yeah. of our lives yeah 
that gives hope to be honest i i was thinking in 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 the course of of this conversation that that i would be and would end very pessimistically but i think the the main conclusion uh, or the, the the silly conclusion from a triodos perspective let all people read your book and understand that it's not about financial return but about return or impact or whatever in in the longer run um and that that's i think the perspective of course that we at triodos think is the right perspective but it's it's always in a discussion with people um challenging to to let them understand that what you want to do is have impact for the longer run and it's not about short-term returns also for our clients sometimes um I, I think, mean, I would say, yeah. Hans. I think I think there's another another point there, which is that, you know, in advanced economies in particular, and with the slowing down of, of productivity rate growth and of growth rates generally, we are moving towards a world actually which is which is narrowing the the rates of return that are possible without creating inequality, and and so. You know, if it, 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 in a sense, there's a kind of moral choice there for people. You know, if you go for a wonderful um, eight, ten, twelve percent return fund, you have to accept that ultimately that can only come at the cost of either other people or the planet. I, I completely, I completely agree on that one. <laughs> that's that's always what what we say, and and. So what we have written about, if you if you expect in the long run a high return, you forget a lot of things. You f- you forget completely the ecological part, the damage you will do. Um, so you must be honest in that respect. So the moral aspect in finance is, I think, really important, um, especially if you talk with whatever clients you have to so to promise them in the right way what they can expect but that's also a place i think where governments play an absolutely crucial role because if you allow you know just uh, the freedom to to ignore that moral imperative and you allow for you know speculative funds which are not only uh unfairly allocating wealth to a, a minority but they're also destabilizing markets then it becomes more difficult for for triodos and others to create that that fairer finance yeah that's 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 a challenge okay we have to we have to end this one uh, thank you very much for your inspiration and thoughts on on everything on the post growth on the finance and 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 on the transition part it's been a pleasure hans thanks it was really a pleasure um hopefully we can continue this conversation somewhere offline that would be good thank you for being here and uh, have a nice day thanks, thanks hans Good to be with you. This brings us to the end of the first episode of our podcast, Inside Impact Investing, and our series, Reset the Economy. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to tune in for the second episode, The Changed Investment Environment, in which we will discuss a new approach to investing based on impact, risk, and return. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or via your favorite podcast app. Until next time.